and he will set aside, he will destroy the enemies of his own covenant people. In the Old Testament, those enemies took the form of Babylonians and Assyrians who were constantly attacking the land and trotting off with their produce and destroying their crops and the like. But eventually that is ratcheted up into a much bigger concept of the notion of the enemies of the people of God. The most fundamental enemy is not the Hittites. It's sin and destruction and death itself. And this Davidic king will destroy all of the enemies. Today on the Songtime broadcast, we'll continue our study in this fourth week of Advent, looking at the Gospel of Luke and the Song of Zacharias, which is really a prophecy of who John the Baptist will be in proclaiming the way of the Lord Jesus, who will save us from our greatest enemy. Stay tuned for that. But first, we'll be joined once again by Bob Lapine as we talk about the four emotions of Christmas and opportunities to share our faith. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. Our guest today is Bob Lapine, who is quite the resume in Christian radio. He's certainly done a plenty of interviews on the other side of the microphone with his various ministries with uh, Family Life Today, as well as Truth for Life with Alistair Begg. But today, I have the privilege of interviewing him and putting him in the hot seat as he's written an excellent book called The Four Emotions of Christmas. It's a great resource, especially to give and hand out to your friends and family who are not believers, as it presents a gospel, a compelling gospel presentation. It's much more than a tract, though, and it's a great opportunity for you to give a gift to somebody that you would also like to invite to a Christmas service, whether Christmas Eve this Saturday or Christmas Day, as our church will be gathering on Christmas Day, and I hope that many of yours are as well. When we think about the opportunities we have to share our faith, I think, Bob, that your book really gets to the heart of a lot of challenges, a lot of conflicting emotions that people have during the holidays. The four emotions of Christmas really capture more than just an an evangelistic tool. It really strikes to the heart of what many of our listeners are struggling, struggling with, because there are so many conflicting emotions that go into this season. Yeah, starting from the first Sunday in Advent up to December 25th, our, our schedules are more packed than ever. Um, our expectations about what life is going to be like, are, we're, we've got a lot loaded in. We have a lot of melancholy. We've got memories. There's sentiment from our childhood, either good or bad, that we experienced growing up. And so we come into the Christmas season with a lot of... Um, expectations, a lot of hopes, a lot of goals. And oftentimes we get in the middle of it and we go, I'm overwhelmed. I'm sad. I'm stressed out. I'm not sure why. I thought Christmas was going to be magical. And and here I am feeling uh, depressed in the middle of the Christmas season. That's one of the things I wanted to try to speak to in this book. Hmm. You're talking about the first chapter here is disappointment. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of unrealistic expectations come with the weight of Christmas. And you talk about that a little bit. The idea of trying to make everything perfect and beautiful and bright. We forget from year to year that things really aren't as Tinseltown as they were. You know, our memories are far better at editing out the negative from last year than they are uh, going into this year. There's a lot that goes into that that lead us to feeling disappointed during the holiday season. Well, most of us during childhood, 
we're taught to expect magic from Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are flying reindeer involved. There are snowmen who come to life. I mean, this is, this is the picture we get. And so we head into this season thinking, could it be real that, that we would experience the magic and the delight and the wonder and the, the, the mystery of it all? And, and, during the Christmas season, maybe we get a gift that we'd been expecting, and so there's, we're we're happy with that. Now, now, wait, now now that you're an adult, you have all of these preloaded memories of this is what was special for me. Can it still be true as an adult? And so you're right. The expectations, whether whether they're front of mind or not, whether we're actually um, thinking about this on the front end or not, uh, we do have a lot of subtle expectations that we carry in that somehow the month of December is going to produce in me wonder and delight and joy and happiness. And then we find ourselves disappointed when we get to December 19th and we go, where's, where is what I've been longing for? Why, why am I not experiencing it here at the Christmas season? Yeah. I think as well, it's trying to keep up the sort of spirit yourself and trying to make it exciting yes. and doing all of this to to build that excitement in other people and other people don't react the same way that we react. There's a lot of conflict there where we're trying to hold on to the nostalgia of our childhood memories in some ways and pass that on to the next generation. And they don't take it as seriously as we took it. You know, video games are far more exciting than the block toys that we played with. So it's a challenge to have that sort of sentiment and that mentality and unrealistic expectations that aren't going to be fulfilled during the holiday season. Well, and I remember um, as a child opening gifts on Christmas that I had been hoping for and dreaming of and thinking, when I get this toy, this toy is going to produce a level of of joy and delight that I have never known before. And I would get it and I'd be excited and I'd play with it for 45 minutes on Christmas. And then I was like, well, that didn't deliver. So it's an unfulfilled, unmet expectation that even as a child, I'm, I'm learning, I thought this would give me something more than it's giving me. And honestly, that that can be helpful because we begin to recognize that joy is not found in stuff or in sentiment or in the holidays. So we start to look, where is real joy found? And that's what the message of Christmas ultimately is all about where real joy is found. We've been talking with Bob Lapine about his excellent book called The Four Emotions of Christmas, a great resource as a gift for all of the loved ones in your life, especially those who are unbelievers, as this presents the gospel in such a beautiful and concise way, and it really connects with the reader as well. This is this is really what song time is all about, many voices, one message. We want to be able to provide you with resources as well as some great content that will encourage you to not only be growing in your own faith, but to be a witness. You are a part of the many voices, and we want to make resources available for you to be effective at sharing your faith with those around you. This is an excellent resource. You can find out more information about the four emotions of Christmas by Bob Lapine when you give us a call, 508-362-7070. That's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website, 
at songtime.com. As you consider your gifts and donations over this holiday season with your friends, your family, your neighbors, also consider Songtime in your end of the year giving. This is a ministry that is 100% supported by you, our listeners. In fact, the only way that we can stay on the air for another year is with your generosity. And I know it's difficult, especially during a season where inflation is on the rise and all of this fear and of the unknown is right around the corner. But if you have been blessed, as you think about all the ways that you have been encouraged and blessed through this ministry, would you consider giving back through a small donation of any size that would help keep this broadcast on the air? It also serves another purpose. It reminds us that you are out there, that you're listening, that you are encouraged, and that makes a world of difference as we plan out our programming and what we're trying to do here. We don't know who's listening unless you contact us. So give us a call, 508-362-7070, or write to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630. You can also head over to our website, where you can make a safe and secure donation at songtime.com. Well, today we're continuing our Advent series, and this week looking at the story or the song of Zechariah. There's this interwoven story between Zechariah and Mary here in the first chapter that is setting up the stage for Luke's gospel. But here it is showing the contrast between the song of Mary and the song um, that we looked at last week and the song of Zechariah, which is a prophecy that John the Baptist would be the one to go before the Messiah. But this this song is really not about John the Baptist. This song is about the one that John the Baptist will, will be setting up as he is preaching and proclaiming the gospel, calling people to repentance and baptism. He will be pointing them to the work and the ministry of Jesus. Here is D.A. Carson with a closer look at the song of Zechariah. The entire burden of this benedictus, this blessing, this praise to God, in lines drawn from the Old Testament, is to point beyond John the Baptist to the one to whom John the Baptist himself points. This anticipation comes in three parts. The argument draws in lines of anticipation that point to Jesus in three parts. First, anticipation from the line of David. Verses 69 to 71, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now the Old Testament background to that, as I'm sure many will remember, is 2 Samuel chapter 7. In that passage, David, now established on the throne in Jerusalem, wants to build an appropriate temple to honor God. At this point, after all, the place of meeting is still a bit of a ratty tent that people had been using for centuries from the time of Moses, with no doubt the animal skins being changed and renewed every once in a while and so forth, but still a bit of a grubby tent, a rather small thing in comparison with the temples that were in all the pagan nations all around honoring their gods, and now they're in Jerusalem. The time was surely ripe to build a a decent building to honor the great God of all. But David is told, "Uh uh-uh, not you. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And of course, there's a pun in the words. 
When David says he wants to build a house for God, what he means is a temple. When God says he wants to build a house for David, what it means is a household, a dynasty. And so there is the beginning of this promise of a Davidic dynasty with line after line, king after king in David's line, continuing until there would be ultimately a king that surpassed all kings. That's not all that clear in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but it becomes very clear 300 years later, 250 years later, at the time of the prophet Isaiah, for example, in words that we hear quoted every Christmas, lines drawn from Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, which is actually going to be quoted a little farther on in the words of the Benedictus too. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. He will sit on the throne of his father David. Of the increase of his kingdom there will be no end. And he shall be called the wonderful counselor, the mighty God the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Now that's not any ordinary David-eyed. That's just not one more kid in the line of David. It's still in the line of David. That's what we're told. He will sit on the throne of his father David, but he will be called the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And thus the expectations for a great Davidic king began to get stronger and stronger. First from 2 Samuel 7, about 1000 BC. Then in the prophecy of Isaiah in the mid-8th century BC. And, and, and so on. By the time you got to the 6th century, these prophecies were becoming clear in the words of Jeremiah and of Ezekiel and so forth. And now that is the line of Old Testament expectation that is about to come to pass. And it's not referring to John the Baptist. It's referring to somebody in David's line, a king. And so when Jesus does begin to preach, he begins to preach by announcing the dawning of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. The kingdom in which God himself makes himself present in fact, there's one Old Testament prophecy along those lines that's rather startling. In Ezekiel 34, God bemoans the false teachers, the, the corrupt kings, even in David's line, the, the, the false priests, the, the financiers, the nobility that are corroding the people all the time. He says, woe to the shepherds of Israel. They are corrupt. They're fleecing the flock. They're, they're stealing the mutton. They're battering the people, but they don't look after the sheep. So I will come and be their shepherd. I will shepherd my flock. I will lead them to green pasture. I will lead them to clear waters. I will be their shepherd. About 25 times. And then he says, after Yahweh himself, God Almighty, has said again and again and again, about 25 times, that he will shepherd the people, he then says, I will send my servant David to shepherd them. And you start asking, Ooh, what is the connection between the coming of God and the coming of the great Davidic figure. That's six centuries before Christ. Small wonder that the pieces begin coming together in the anticipation of the visitation of the Lord, who is a Davidic king. Note, verse 68, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people to redeem them. In what manner has he come? 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us and that was of his servant David. That's the manner in which he's come, through this promised Davidic king. And he will set aside, he will destroy the enemies of his own covenant people. In the Old Testament, those enemies took the form of Babylonians and Assyrians who were constantly attacking the land and trotting off with their produce and destroying their crops and the like. But eventually that is ratcheted up into, into a huger concept, a much bigger concept of the notion of the enemies of the people of God. For at the end of the day, the enemies are not mere political figures. They're everything that is bound up with the curtailment of, the enslavement of, the destruction of, the, the soul-destroying wickedness of God's own covenant people. So that in one remarkable passage, the Apostle Paul says, Christ must now reign until he has put all of the enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed, Paul writes to the Corinthians, is death itself. The most fundamental enemy is not the Hittites. It's sin and destruction and death itself. And this Davidic king will destroy all of the enemies, even death itself. When I was a little kid, I found out that I was named after the first sinner in the Bible. I was named after Adam. And uh, when I found out that, I told my parents I no longer wanted to be called Adam. I was ashamed of being called Adam, and I wanted to change my name. And I found the perfect name for myself from the Bible. I wanted to be called David. David was the one who slayed giants and was a hero in the Bible. And of course, I would want to be named after him. He is the quintessential childhood hero. He has all of the sort of uh, draw for a little boy who wants to be strong and, and have adventures and do all of these great things. And of course, he was a biblical character, so why not get named after him? I remember having this conversation once with my dad. He was putting me to bed, and he said, Good night, Adam. And I said, No, 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 I'm no longer Adam. I want to be called David. And he says, Okay, I'll see you in the morning, Adam. I said, David, David. Of course, the next morning, I completely forgot about it and, and just went along with being called Adam. So for your information, I know that you've been hanging on to this to find out the conclusion of this story. I did not get my name changed. I'm still called Adam, even to this very day. But you can imagine how this whole story would unfold as Zechariah is declaring that, that this child that, that he was given would be the one to be the forerunner of the Son of God, Jesus, who would be in the line of David. This is an amazing proclamation that this would be the hero that they had long had waited for. That this would be the king of kings and the lord of lords. This would be the one who would take them back to their glory days, but beyond that, to a better establishment of a kingdom without any sin, without any blemish, without any tragedy or any strife. This is the king that everyone has been waiting for. As we look across the world today, we can see that there are many uh, forms of politics and all of them are destructive. All of them have, have had some negative connotation to them. But there is one that we look forward to who will be a king who will be perfect in every way, shape, and form. And what we are celebrating during this holiday season, what we're reflecting on, is the incarnation of this king. He came into our world. 
He is the king. I know it's very hard for us as Westerners to accept the fact that Christ is ruling and reigning today. The world in which we're living in seems to be falling apart. But he is the king, and his ambassadors, many of them, uh, of which have not been doing what they are supposed to be doing, will pay the penalty for not carrying out his rule and his reign in his place. But make no bones about it. Jesus is king. He is Lord. As far as God is concerned from his perspective, the prophecies have been fulfilled. The king has come. It's whether or not you or I will bow the knee to Jesus as our king. That's what Christmas is all about. And there are opportunities all around us to be reminded of that as, as we look to the true meaning of Christmas. I hope that we've been able to encourage you today if we have I hope that you will be an encouragement to us. This is a ministry that is 100% supported by you, our listeners. If you have been encouraged, if you've been challenged, if you've grown in any way, would you consider giving back to the Songtime Ministry so that we can continue to be a blessing to you and others in your community? Help us as we seek to reign with Christ and promote his kingdom on earth, even as it is in heaven. Give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. Or write to us. Send in your end-of-the-year donation to Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com, where you can make a safe and secure donation online. Visit our our social media pages as well. Let us know that you're listening. It's always an encouragement to hear from you, our listeners. And don't forget to tune in again tomorrow as we continue our study here in the Song of Zechariah, the prophecy of Christ the Savior. Because of a promise God gave to Abraham in this covenant that from his seed would come one who would bless all the nations with salvation from their bitterest enemies. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Luke 2:14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. <laughs>